This episode is brought to you by Scott Keogh Horsemanship, offering a wide range of services from horse breaking and training to clinics and private lessons, tested, tried and true horsemanship coaching and advice, clear and easy to understand horsemanship advice, a common sense approach with no showmanship or gimmicks. Go to www.skhorsemanship.com for more information, products and a range of Scott's DVDs. Sport Horse 505 due to come out any day. Follow Scott on Instagram and Facebook. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. From the sand. Hey folks, Scott Keogh here from The Saddle. Boy, I tell you what, I'm, I'm really excited about the guest we've got here today. A man whose name will never be forgotten in Australian rodeo. He's way ahead of his time as a rodeo bullfighter and then basically invented breeding bucking bulls in Australia. We're talking about the very, very capable, the one and only Pat Speedy. From the saddle. From, from the saddle. Tell me, how old are you these days, Pat? 78. 78, right. Well, for many a long year, you entertain large crowds throughout Australia with your bullfighting prowess. I'm not, I'm not retired yet. I still work. Oh, you still work? Oh, yeah. Right, oh, mate. Well, uh, we're going to delve into all that, Pat. And anyone who rode bulls for any length of time in Australia knew the brand PS on the rump of a bucking bull meant one thing. It meant if you hit the ground, you better be running. They were always the savagest bulls around. Uh, the Pat Speedy bucking bulls, um, they, they put a lot of fear into a lot of cowboys. So uh, I'm really interested uh, to find out about the whole deal, Pat. So uh, please tell me, how did you get started in rodeo and handling wild cattle? I got started watching the, watching the old guys. Like when we were young and worked in the mustering camps and that, the old guys... They're old now, but you see, you've got to remember they're 10 years older than I am. And um, the guys that I hung with, it was always a passion. It was our endeavor to um, get out there at the risk of being uh, crippled, you know. That's what started me. I just, we had a passion to watch those old guys and wanted to be part of it. And the rest of it just followed from there. So you're talking about working on the cattle stations out west, or where did yeah, this start? Yeah, like when we, in the mustering camps and that, well, I call them old, but they like, see, the, say if we were 18, well, they were 28, you see, they're 10 years older than yeah. I am. And they were at their peak, and the hooked and horns come out, and um, we just went straight to the, straight to the photos of the, the rodeo photos, you know? Like, they, they were our gods, if you understand. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, like they were our gods. Those guys were our gods. Like the, the the Vikings had their gods, you know, Valkyrie and Odin and so forth, but they were our gods. We wanted to be part of it. So were you a Boona boy growing up, mate, like you grew up in, you know? No, I, I well, towards the part, I really originally come from Kingaroy. But I've been here for uh, 60 odd years. Now, I heard you were a good footballer in your day. Is that right? Yeah, I played football. Is this during the rodeo days or before? Oh, yeah. No, no. Both. Yep. One was on Saturday. Another one was on the Sunday. You see, most rodeos, I don't know about most rodeos, but a number of rodeos were on the Saturday, which, of course, you couldn't get a liquor license for Sunday. And we played football on Sunday, and the rodeos were on Saturday. 
And, um, yeah, I mixed both together. Yeah, right. What position were you, mate? I played lock. Yeah, right. Yep. Okay, so, mate, did you ever ride bulls yourself or Bronx or that? No, 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 I wasn't that, um, I wouldn't have been any good as a uh, contestant. You know, I broke horses and all that type of thing. Um, you know, I broke horses for a long time, actually, uh, but um, I didn't contest, no. So how did you get a job as a bullfighter? Did you just turn up at a rodeo and have a go, or how did no, it start? No, well, Vic Goff yeah. um, was running rodeos down the, down the coast, and um, that's where I got the first uh, taste of it. And, uh, well, it was pretty easy for me because I loved it, you see. Yeah. I just want, just got the taste of it, and uh, and I just wanted to be uh, wanted to be part of it. Okay. And I just got oh, a couple of people saw me, and I got offered some jobs, and um, there was no big deal, or no nobody set out to break records or anything like that. I just took the opportunities that were there, and um, hoped I did a good enough job to be paid. Yeah, so are we talking um, just paddock bulls and committee bulls or are we talking contract bulls at this point? At the time, I started with whatever they could get hold of. Yep. Um, the contract bulls didn't really get going until um, oh, the early 70s. Yep. There were a few around. And then the more time was spent on them and um, I'd have a guess and say that the contract bulls were a lot stronger towards the end of the 80s than they were towards the end of the 70s. They got stronger, if you understand. Yep. So so when and where did you become a stock contractor? How did that come about? Oh, just nothing was planned. Just uh, just something I, I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I loved doing. And um, so I did it. Yep. And, and uh, it's like fighting bulls. Um, you try and do a good, a good enough job to get out back. And as far as the bulls went, if they buck well enough, well, more more committees wanted them. Okay, so before we delve into how you bred the bulls, so what did the bulls start as? Were they just scrubbers? Were they just... No, no, they were just Brangus cows we had here. Yeah. And um, in the early part of it, not a lot was planned, but a bull called Jimmy Iron Man, he was named after Jimmy Maguire. Yeah. I purchased him around oh, 75, 76. I still have the docket here. I bought him at Cannon Hill. To, it was in the cattle depression. Cattle weren't bringing any money. And he cost me uh, $72.50. Was he already a, a bucking bull when you got him? No, no, no. He was just a bull. I was after colour, you see. And I, I, he was a uh, uh, like a, a black bull with white in him. and um. I was out to colour, and um, when he started, he didn't buck. But um, as he got older, he bucked. When he hit his straps later on, probably around four-year-old, he took to bucking, and uh, he ended up quite okay. And um, with him, we started to get fair income. So was he the original sire, would you say? Oh no, we had we had used a couple of other bulls before him, but um, with him, we used like a couple of bulls that were by him. We used them, and um, 
all this dock from 1980 on would have been well and truly Jimmy Iron Man. We kept heifers out of him and a couple of seed bulls. See, he was our first. He was our first proper seed bull, and we kept you know bulls that we thought might do it. We liked had colour in them. Kept them for seed seed bulls and uh, and put them over his heifers, and uh, and that's how you get the colour today. A lot of them have got colour. That's where they. That's how they get it. They just straight out to him first off. They didn't have colour. They didn't have colour until we, um, well, they call it line bread. So we line bread them, and um, and that's where the bulls, yeah, they got bigger and um, and stronger and a bit of colour in them. And they're all savage, mate. Well, we only the cows. We didn't keep them unless they were savage. Yeah, right. And like and there's like and I mean proper savage, you know. I bet. I mean, I've only heard nightmare stories like the guys that practice at Pat Speedy's place. They were the real deal. Yeah, but um, we looked after them pretty good, and a lot of those real savage cows were gentle to handle. If you understand, they weren't brumbies to get in or anything like that. They come in pretty easy, um, and while I ha- while we handled them ourselves. They behave themselves. Oh, you always got some that you had to, you know, you had to watch them. You had to watch them. Yeah, you used to, you didn't turn your back on them and all that type of thing. I bet. And um, you're careful. The kids used to work them. The kids used to dip them. Like they were only 14, that type of thing. So you dip them pretty easy. Yeah, that's that's hard to imagine if you weren't there. Now, I've heard plenty of tail from your place, and I don't know if, if they're right or not, but before we get into that, when you were contracting around there, around that period of Jimmy Iron Man and that, who were the, the hard bull riders to throw off? Who were the toughs? Um, oh, the guy I remember the most, you see, that's all going back a bit. The, the, the guy that was out on his own was a guy called Tom Kenny. Yeah. And... Uh, there were other guys before him, Barry Jones and Barry Gravener, but I didn't see enough of them. Yep. And so I didn't see enough of them, but in their time they were regarded, Barry Jones and Barry Gravener were um, regarded as uh, pretty tough to get on the ground. Yep. And then since then, like you got Troy Dunn, but I didn't see Troy Dunn. You see, Troy didn't start till I had finished. Yep. And so through the 70s and Halfway through the 80s, Tom Kenny. Yeah, right. Shane's dad. I think Tom went for a couple of years, and uh, I don't you know, I think he went for two seasons and didn't buck off a bull. Yes, that must be some kind of record. Yeah, he won, he two, won two titles, and while he won those two titles, he didn't buck off a bull. Is that right? Yeah. Unreal. I reckon Paul Farley holds some sort of record like that about two years, too. But I remember in the early 80s when I was a little boy and you'd come and stay at my house during Warwick Rodeo, my house was opposite the sale yards there. A lot of people would yeah, remember like it. Yeah, that, that was part of it. Um, see, I don't even think about rodeo today. And I can, uh, in 12 months, I wouldn't give it a minute's thought. Yeah. But the people I met, I see them every day. Uh, I, you know, I do business with them every day. Uh, a lot of them weren't rodeo people. But I met them through rodeo and um, and the, the likes of your parents. 
Yeah, Warwick Road, yeah, time, or if you were going through there, you called up there for a cup of tea, and that was part of your cup of coffee, and that was part of um, uh, that was part of going down the road. Yep, yeah, the people you met. And, you know, looked after animals and, oh, uh, you know, we're always hauling, you know, bloody goats and that type of thing, and we needed somewhere to tie them up. Well, I can remember going under my house one day and you had a monkey tied up in yeah, a carpet snake. Yeah, all that. Ty- all oh, that. my God. Yeah, i never yeah, seen anything like it. it. It's um, that's just part of it. Um, it. I guess it doesn't quite happen like that today. But, um, yeah, like the committees, they wanted comedy. And um, I, I didn't like comedy. I wasn't much good at. I wasn't any good at comedy. And uh, but I had to do it. And it, we just done the best we could. Yep. And hope somebody laughed. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of having a laugh, I've, I've got to share a tale here that uh, I had heard a bit about it. But Morris Morton the other day reminded me of it. You, you've got to tell the story about taking the bulls down to the Clumber Dip Yards. I think someone said there's like 130 of them. And on the way home, it's nearly pitch black dark and you've run into some campers. Yeah. Morris was with me. Well, that's all getting back a bit. I guess Morris would only have been oh, 12 or 13 year old, I suppose. We'd taken the bulls down like a pretty fair mob. There would have been, would have been over 200 of them. And um, took them down to clear and dip and dipped them and fetched them back. And the kids were only pretty little. Matthew and Bernadette, they were only pretty little. They were on horses behind them. I had Morris with me. And um, in, like, I had an F-100 in those days. I was patrolling things in the in F-100. And we come up at the road we live in, Spice's Gut Road. And there's a, there's a creek there and there's two tents set up in the creek. And I went up to them and I told them, look, there's some cattle coming up the road and just stay in the tents, stay in the tents until they've all gone past. And, uh, well, there was one particular bull. He's a quiet bull, actually. Quite, quiet by your standards. But a quiet, but a, a real savage bull, like <laughs> a bull that didn't run, a real confident bull, but a real savage bull in the yards and he never, ever ran anywhere because he thought he could handle everybody, you see. And um, he was taking his time. He would have been 50 yards behind the others. And the kids, the guys in the tents, like a mixture of uh, two tents up and a pretty fair team of them, there would have been a dozen of them there, a mixture of of guys and girls. And um, they thought all the bulls had gone past, but this guy was still 50 yards along the back of the track. On it, you know, wandering along with the kids behind him, and they thought they were kids in the in the tent thought they were pretty safe, and so they come out of the tent, and uh, the bull saw him and got. He didn't take off or anything. He just got excited. He wanted to have him, you see, and um, they had the front flap of one of the tents up, and he walked in the tent, and he just would have thought he was look walking into some lantana or something, you see. And because he saw one of the guys walk go in the tent, but the guy went out the other went out the back of the tent, and he walked in the tent, and um, and that's when it <laughs> he just got really agitated and and took to everything. Um, yeah, took to everything, motorbikes and everything. He knocked them, hooked the motorbikes to bits, and. Um, 
everything. He took to everything. I heard some old boy there had a brand new, like, EB Falcon, and he's even ran up on the bonnet and the roof of his own car, didn't his own car in, trying to survive. Oh, yeah, they were on the roof. There's a few of them up on the roof. But that only made the bull worse. And you see, it was late in the afternoon, and they were just they were about to kick cook. It's hard to be serious about this. This was all... <laughs> This all happened so quick. It was like a, it was like a, uh, like a movie if you understand, yeah. with full of stuntmen and all the rest, you know. And uh, they just had the had the stove going, the gassy gas stove going, and had all their meat and bread and that out. And of course, the dogs, they weren't worried about the bull. They ate all their tucker on them, and um, it was a comedy if you understand. I can imagine. Yeah. Nobody, nobody got, nobody got hurt. Um, they, they all took it pretty. Um, and I just, after the they, things had settled down, I said the best thing they can do is go down to. They didn't have any tucker. Go down to Calbo and uh, to the hotel down there and get a meal down there. And uh, one of the guys said, "I want a picture of this." He said. Like they wrecked the tents, if you understand. Broke the pole in the middle. It was just everything was all just collapsed. It was just a bloody mess. Had guitars in there that the bullets stomped all over, and and smashed everything in there. They had stretchers in there. He wrecked them all, and and he said, one of these kids said, I want a I want a photo of this. He says, when I go home and tell me old man what happened to his tent, he's not going to believe me. <laughs> I wish I was there because Mor- Morris tells it with such enthusiasm. <laughs> I feel like I was there, so I feel that this must have happened regularly at your place. But um, well, that was that was no another time. See, we fed cow, we fed the cows, and she was a quiet cow also, and we had a name and all. We called a butterfly, and um, like the cows were out on the road, and. Um, he must have pulled up for a pee, you know, and he's standing beside the door having a pee. And you see, we used to feed him out of the vehicle. And when she walked up to the vehicle and he had something, nothing, to, didn't have anything for her to eat, uh, she thought she'd eat him, you see. And so she broke his shoulder and tore the door of his car. And um, he wrote a letter to the council. And the council wrote a letter to me. But um, nothing come of it, but they were different times to what they are now, if you understand. <laughs> Thank God for that. Yeah. So tell me, Pat, how in the hell did you handle those bulls? Like, I mean, you live on the side of a range, mountain range. How, yep. did, you, how did you handle them, muster them and things like that? Because when you've seen them at a rodeo. I had, I had dogs here, so soft dogs, believe it or not, and um They'd been taught to smell, you know, smell cattle, and um, and I, nobody else would in there. But oh well, when the kids were little, they went in there a, a bit. They come in there with me, but later on, I only ever went in there by myself with the dogs. And the dogs put, picked the scent up, and they used to go after them. And they're only soft dogs. They used to bail them up and uh, bail the cows up, and um. The cows had been used to being bailed up, and uh, I always hauled a dog that yapped. And when he yapped, I'd find them. They could go away before 
the dogs picked them up and got around them. And they were, the cows were all pretty, they treated pretty good. Like they weren't, they weren't handled with rough dogs or anything like that. And the soft got dogs could handle them. And um, we used to walk them home. Like it, it um, so, and then the, you keep heifers and the heifers learn off the cows. And so it just works. It, it, that's just the way it works. And the, um, the heifers learn off the cows and how to be handled. And, um, and that's just the way it goes. We still do that today. Only the cows are all quiet today. Yeah, right. Like we got we got Brangus cows today, and um, and if any of them play up, they get sold. But the the dogs can handle them as easy as easy. There's no running away or anything like that. There's no no runners amongst them or anything like that. We, you know, we'd muster and and not get out of a trot. You just had a fascination with these feral bulls, like you wanted them all hooky. Yeah, like. People want to be thrilled. Yeah. Yeah, people want to be thrilled, no matter what it is. They pay their way to be thrilled, and um, that was my idea of it. And then in America, they thought the same way. So when did you get out of the contracting and just get to where you sold those young bread bulls? When I got out of the contracting? Yeah, so what what brought that on, mate? So you got to where you stopped contracting, in, but you still kept breeding and selling as a breeder. Yeah, I still in, I still enjoyed it. I, I had the cows here. Um, in the end, we had a couple of sales here and got rid of all the all the females. I'd got to a point where it didn't mean enough to me, and and it was just time to give it away. As well as that, rodeo was fading a bit, and um. Uh, I wasn't quite so much interested in it. You see, when we started through the 70s, rodeo grounds used to be packed and the crowds were dropping off. And so I, we just decided to, I just decided to uh, have, have a couple of sales, sold all the females, and that was it. I, I don't regret it or anything like that. I don't, um, uh, I'd had me fill, if you understand. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what were some of the more famous bulls that you've bred? Can you name them, Pat? Um, oh, bulls that had pretty good names. Um, oh, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, bulls had numbers to me and, and I lost track of their names. I do remember a couple of names and that was, uh, Insanity and, um, Bambi. Yeah. But, um, Gary McPhee had a, another lot of bulls, like, um, Vibrator and them. No standings. They done their job. They done their job. What, whether people want to compare them with animals today, uh, I'm not interested. Yep. What you have got to remember is, on their day, they done their job. Yeah, you can't compare different eras, can you? Yeah, they on their day they done their job, and ten years down the track, if somebody's got something better, well, just that's it. Gary McPhee told me that you can teach a bull out of charge. Is that right? Oh, if you <laughs> Americans had the same idea, like if you annoy a bull enough, you'll bring the fight out in him. Oh, yeah, like that. But that's well known. The contractors in America, when I was there, they didn't let a bull out of the arena, or most of them, until the bullfighters had made a good pass at him. Uh, they let him know that it was happening because 
that ball might want to be turned back and you want to keep him looking at the looking for the bullfighter. You follow what I'm talking about? Yeah. So whereabouts did you fight in America, Pat, and how long for? I was there for six months. Um, everything just come by chance, right from the very beginning, right from, from when I went down to pick golf. Everything just come by chance. A guy was had been in America competing, and he come home, and I saw him at a, at a rodeo, and he handed me a card, and it was Bomb Donaldson's business card. And when he handed me the, the card, he said he wants you to call him up. Well, at the time, Bob Donaldson, he was president of the uh, Bullfighters Association in America, and I called him up. And he just said, you better get over here. Yeah, we want you over here. And uh, and so as quick as I could organize a visa, I was over there. And um, his wife picked me up at Denver, like at an international airport. Um, he picked, she picked me up in Denver, and I was at, went out to their little house. And a couple of days after I was there, guys wouldn't remember him today, but in our day, our time, not that I was into bareback riders, really. I didn't really know him. A guy called Bruce Ford. Yeah. Bruce ended up winning half a dozen world titles. And um, he was running a school. And Donaldson didn't live all that far from Bruce Ford. And so a couple of days, after, a few days after I was there, we go over to Bruce. Bruce was just, a, just a spectators. And... There was a lot of people there, if you understand. Yeah. Like, and there was Lyle Tanky was there running at the same time a bull ride, a bull riding school and a bronc riding school. So they had three events going, and all the kids had bought their parents and that. Like there was as many people there as what you'd get at a damn rodeo here, and a canteen going and all. Well, I just got in the back yards and started bringing stock up. Because there's teams of, you know, there was guys lining up to get on bulls and live guys lining up to get on Bronx. And and I just started bring, helping them. I'd never met them before. I just, you know, I just got in the back and started shutting a few sliding gates and that. And I hadn't met Bruce, but at the end of the day, he came up to me and asked me, you want a job? And I said, yeah. And I said, Bruce was for the next three months. Yeah, right. And I used that as a base and travelled. I was doing some rodeos. And at the time, as I said, things were over there were very big. Yep. Uh, on Tuesday nights over there, they'd get 100 kids there, 100 kids to get on of all different stages, like little kids, bigger kids, to get on young bulls, gentle bulls and bulls that could do a bit more. And... They had to be fed. The horses had to be fed. Everything was fed. And that's what I was doing. I was, uh, me and another guy were feeding the stock and his father, Jim. It was just, it was fun. It was fun. Going to the, going to the, just the same as what we did here. They were, had to eat at the ground, looking for horses all the time. Had to eat at the ground, looking for bulls all the time. And they'd go and pick them up. And and that's what we do. That's what we were doing. And uh, that's how I uh, that's how I met Bruce. And that's how I settled in over there. And uh, yeah, it it just everything was by accident. Yeah, right, fate, eh? 
So did you have any major injuries throughout your career, Pat? Yeah, uh, uh, not real, not not super major, but I, I got knocked around a lot. Like I've had a, one hip replacement just recently, and I'm supposed I've got to have another hip replacement. And just a couple of months ago, they put a shoulder in me. I've been see, I played football as well, and I got knocked around a lot. But getting away from the rodeo. A thing that meant to me a lot was the people you you met, and uh, I heard a little story just recently. It was on the television, uh, and I only got a. I just relate this yarn from what I remember of it. I, I don't know who the lady was, but she must have been an athlete, and she was in America, and she used to go down and lap this arena of an afternoon, and there was this old black guy there, and. I don't know how many afternoons it took, but she was down there lapping the arena and this old black guy was there and anyway, they became friends. And this she told, told this old black guy who she was and the old black guy says back to her, he, he says, I'm Jesse Owens. Yeah, right. And that's exactly the, not Jesse Owens, but the same thing, that was the greatest thing about rodeo and was the people you met. Yeah. You see, I remember Bruce, even though he won six bareback titles, probably six or seven, was his family and and, his, and the person himself, like just a super person, and his family is just a wonderful family, if you understand. I travelled with his son a little bit, Royce, so Royce ended up a terrific bareback rider as well. I, I don't know. I haven't followed it, you see. Yeah. I know he was starting to, he was starting to contest. Uh, he had a, a, a Bruce had a brother. Whether it's one of his sons or not, I got no idea. But Bruce had a, a brother that rode bareback horses as well. I reckon that might have been Glenn. Um, I, he was a real nice guy, real like a real gentleman. He was chasing. He was tailing up horses at a rodeo, and they turned back and run back over the top of him and killed him. Oh, jeez! That's you know a, a tragedy. Yeah. What was your favourite rodeo? Oh, it'd have to be Warwick. Yeah, right. Why is that? Oh, I just liked it. Yeah. There were some rodeo grounds where you always did better. It was easier easier to work for. Yep. Uh, easier to work at. Uh, Warwick was always, I found Warwick always easier to work. That was my favourite rodeo without a doubt. I'm in bargain. So, yeah. Uh, so tell me, Pat. Um, you still keep uh, you still keep fit. You're still running a few cows there up the side of the mountain. Yeah, they still run the Brangus cows running the same where the rodeo cows used to run. Yeah, we just it's still the same. We're just a bit older. <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> you mightn't have been around the shoots for a while now, but uh, I think it'd be fair to say that every major bull contract in Australia would have speedy blood in their herd today. If not first generation, at least second and third generation. Uh, so the name Pat Speedy has left his mark on Australian rodeo and it's not going to go anywhere, Pat. So uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I know a few blokes said, geez, I don't know if you'll get old Pat to talk at all. But uh, I think you've done very well, mate, and I've, I've really enjoyed uh, spending an hour with you here now, mate, and uh, you are one of the icons of Australian rodeo. And uh, I really appreciate your time, Pat. Good on you. Cheers, mate. All the best. Okay, good. Thanks to our sponsor, Scott Keogh Horsemanship. 
I'm Caitlin Hewitt, the founder and co-host of From the Saddle. I started this podcast a year and a half ago because I knew important stories from rural Australia weren't being told. We hear stories of triumph and tenacity, heartache and loss from rodeo riders, outback ringers, cattle traders, bronze sculptors and more. From the Saddle is an independent podcast. It's just us telling stories that matter to our community and we are so stoked that nearly 100,000 people have joined us for the ride. We're looking for partners this season to help tell these stories because we think they're worthy of being told. They're a part of our history and possibly our future. If you're interested, we'd love to hear from you.